Hey everyone, welcome back to Strange New Worlds, your science and Star Trek podcast. I'm Mike Wong, your host, and today we are recapping and responding to episode two of season three of Star Trek Discovery. I have a special guest for this episode. Her name is Ingrid Okert. She has a PhD in the history of science from Princeton University and is going to be my guest on the next full episode of Strange New Worlds, where we're going to talk about the intersection of science and Star Trek all the way back at Star Trek's inception in the 1960s. But right now, Ingrid and I are going to talk Disco and this week's episode titled Far From Home. I have to confess, I did not watch season two. So I watched the pilot of Discovery the like the week it came out, like, you know, a couple of years ago. And I was like, eh, I don't know. And then I, so I didn't watch one or two. And then I just decided that, you know, when it was relaunching, I really enjoyed Lower Decks, like mm-hmm. a ton. I love Lower Decks. I watched that all this season. Um, and I thought, okay, I should, I should give Discovery another shot. And I love the premiere episode of Discovery. Um, so this yeah. week's was a bit harder for me because I didn't know the characters as well. I mean, I know the characters kind of because I've been keeping up on the like the reviews and the summaries for the last couple of years. But yeah. um, I'm really interested, like as someone who's been watching Discovery all the way through, what you thought of the reintroduction of the ship's cast and crew. Uh-huh. Like, what was that like for you to see everybody, especially after last week where we only, like last week was like a beautiful kind of 1970s short story that you get, like where mm-hmm. it's about like, a woman who is sort of in a new world and how she discovers and rediscovers herself through her interactions with a new surrounding, very 70s sci-fi. And this week's episode felt very, very 50s, kind of back to the serial model to me. But uh-huh. what did you think of it as someone who's seen everything through? I guess I don't have all of the references to the you know 50s and 60s sci-fi oh. the way that you do. So Sorry. you make those connections immediately. I'm a nerd. I, I just think <laughs> back to 2017. Um, you know, uh, sometimes that's as far as I can remember back to. But um, you know, that's when Discovery first premiered. And you know, at the very beginning, when we we're introduced to the character of Saru, I was a little bit skeptical that I would like the character very much because he was sort of a fraidy cat of everything. Um, You know, very inquisitive and uh, a very good Starfleet officer, but also very hesitant to take risks or to step into a big leadership role. And seeing his evolution through the past couple of seasons to the extent that, you know, he is now essentially the acting captain of the Discovery and taking this crew and this battered ship uh, into a completely new time and universe, essentially full of danger and really stepping into that leadership role and being an awesome leader, a captain that I would definitely follow to the end of the universe and back uh, was special for me. I really agree with that. I mean, I think that, you know, I think the actor is Doug Jones, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he's such a a master, really, of characterization and these deep characters that you see um, he's built over time in his movies. And it's actually part of the reason I was really excited to to see him in this, uh, you know, in in Discovery was that he's so, he's so good at building up that, you know, um, almost invisible characterization, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's like kind of the slow build. And having not seen really the last two seasons of Discovery, I was I would have just assumed that he was always this way. That's so interesting to hear that 
he was sort of a freaky cat to begin with. <laughs> yeah. Can you say a little bit more about your 50s reference? Why this particular episode reminded you of sci-fi from the 50s? If I think about 1950s science fiction, right, I think a lot about um, space operas. Space operas are slightly older in some ways. Like that comes from an earlier, like, you know, maybe 30s and 40s serialized thing. But in 1950s sort of space operas, you kind of get this nice mixture of, you know, ongoing action, which is what we definitely saw in this episode of Discovery. Um, but you also get, you know, these little charming character vignettes. So you get like a peek into the relationship of um, Tilly and Saru. You get a little bit of a snapshot into the relationship of um, the medical officer and an engineer, right? right. Um, and that is, it's super fun. And I like it because again, you get bits and pieces, you kind of get a collage of all the people who are working together in a starship. And that's kind of, I think science fiction from the 50s kind of works in this way where you get snapshots of everybody working together. And that usually serves um, to move forward the main plot's central story or moral center. Um, whereas in 1970s sci-fi, I feel it's much more about sort of an individual's personal journey, mm. um, which again is very much what we saw in the first episode of Discovery for the season. So yeah, I don't know whether that's an accurate um, analysis of uh, sci-fi from the 50s, but it's part of the reason I really like the genre, kind of the golden age feel, because it is so, you know, it, it gives you so many different perspectives on the human experience. Mm -hmm. uh, and I really feel like we saw a lot of depictions of how people deal with stress in this episode, right? And maybe that's pretty common for Discovery. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, I absolutely think so. Um, Discovery is a very stressful Star Trek series to watch. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, especially because there's always such high stakes, lots of action. And yeah. it's one of those TV shows where you never know who's just about to die. You know, it could yeah. be a character and they could be gone the next episode. So, And that seems so surprising. And my sister was explaining to me that Anthony Rapp's character was recovering his memory. Is that right? Uh, yeah. So he, right. he, he had a very traumatic injury in the mm -hmm. last episode of season two and is recovering okay. from that. And so that, that's another way in which it, it's amazing to see that, you know, someone could die or they could have like for his character have such a severe incident happen that almost puts them back on point zero where they have to completely rebuild again. That's, which is just fascinating to watch, mm -hmm. you know? I wanted to ask, um, was there something about what was going on in the world and the difference between the 1950s and the 1970s external to sci-fi that might have influenced this aspect of storytelling, the sort of collective nature of the 1950s versus the individualistic hero's journey of the 70s? I think so. From what I know of uh, 1970s scholarship when it comes to science and technology study, gender studies, and the growth of other humanistic disciplines in this period, there is a, a focus on trying to understand culture. And there is certainly in the 50s as well, but in the 1970s, there's this real question of what is it that makes us human? What is it that actually makes our culture what it is? Um, and so you do see that in academia, certainly, that you, again, you have the disciplines that start to rise like gender studies and so forth. Um, and that ends up being reflected in the genre of science fiction. 
it's part of the reason that we start seeing, I think, just beautiful works of science fiction done by authors like Ursula Le Guin in this period. And oh, Joanna Russ, that's, I mean, that's a great example, right, of a work such as The Female Man that really looks at uh, what gender means in space. And so there's a way in which science fiction transforms from what it was, I think, in the 50s, which is different. I mean, in the 1950s science fiction, golden age sci-fi in general, is looking at the ways that science operates in society, the way that society is put together. There's a lot of golden age 1950s science fiction that feels like satire, that looks sort of at the ways that the world fits together and maybe the ways that it doesn't. A good example of this is something like Robert Heinlein's classic short story, The Roads Must Roll, that looks at the ways that technology becomes so integral to a society that you have to keep it going at all costs. Um, and that feels very different from a story from the 1970s. Again, I'm thinking Joanna Russ, which looks at the ways that gender might exist in a different space, literally. And so you go from sort of the, the large, the macro, to the personal, the micro. And in many ways, the 60s, I would argue, is a transformational period. You really do see the genre transform through the 60s. And there's a lot of interesting science fiction that happens in the 1960s because of that. Um, and Discovery, you know, is really interesting because it is very fluid from what I've seen. And I was really impressed at the ways that they explore you know, sort of emotional experiences and discovery. So this is where, again, I don't know the character's name, but I'm a huge fan of the actor Tignotaro. Mm -hmm. um, and can you tell me what their character's name is in the show? Jet Reno. Yeah, so when they were talking to Anthony Rapp's character about pain, I was instantly reminded of their really moving, I think, podcast and stand-up set all about the ways that people experience pain during cancer after their own experience dealing with cancer treatments. And I thought that was a, like almost, it was, again, it was like, it was a good example of how in discovery and in modern science fiction, we have these intense personal journeys that fictional characters go on and they can help audience members really relate in a very cathartic way to pain in their own lives or experiences in their own lives. And that seems to be to me, one of the strengths of discovery. It's really, an excellent series in this way. Wow, that was a wonderful analysis. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, my, my apologies. I wish that I could give a, a closer reading. Um, what did you make of Tilly's turn in this episode? Yeah, I think that um, this is something that Tilly is going to need to grow from and, and learn from is sort of how she was not treated very well by Giorgio and perhaps some of the other mm -hmm. officers too, sort of dismissing Tilly's talents. But, you know, she'll need to, to try to find that confidence in herself. Tilly's been on this arc um, mm. and is one of my favorite characters in Discovery because of her ambitions to become captain one day and going mm. from cadet in season one to an ensign in season two and working her mm. way up. Who knows where she'll end up by the end of season three. But, uh, you mm. know, she's, she's one of those characters that uh, I, I really feel like I'm rooting for her every single episode, mm -hmm. but uh, you know she has a long journey ahead of her, and I, I think it was 
great to see an insecure Star Trek officer for the reasons that you were talking about, Kane, right? Um, A lot Mm -hmm. of times in the previous shows, we see these Starfleet officers who are very, you know, they're great at their jobs and they're very confident at what they do, but it's nice, you know, as a young academic myself, who sometimes lacks confidence just because, you know, I'm doing something new or doing something for the first time or applying for a new job to, to see that in somebody in Star Trek as well. I agree. And it's something where I think that she, the actress who plays the character has done a phenomenal job, really um, showing vulnerability. And I think that's something that characters in Star Trek do a great job of showing all the way through. But man, this actress is just really bringing home what it feels like to feel inexperienced and to be the youngest person in the room. And I think her interactions with the villain of the episode really put to the the forefront the ways in which younger people, especially people who identify as uh, women, often feel like they're easily just put aside, you know, because cast aside, right? I mean, the way that specifically the guy who was the villain of the episode was um, putting her down and really Mm -hmm. making fun of her um, you know, was, yeah, it was, you know, it was, it was, uh, sympathetic. Uh, so I think she did a great job. Now, what did you think of the ways that, again, given what you've talked about with, um, Saru, that he seemed to be mentoring her in this episode? Oh, that's a great point. Uh, that's something I didn't pick up on. Uh, but I think that's, a wonderful thing to notice because Tilly has always sort of been under Michael Burnham's wing and uh, Michael sort of mentored Tilly through the hoops of being a Starfleet officer and trying to Mm -hmm. motivate Tilly to to better herself and Mm -hmm. to overcome whatever perceived failings that she had in the moment. But with Mm -hmm. Michael gone and off the ship, Saru really bringing Tilly under his wing was, was fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And especially given his backstory, as you've explained it to me, where, mm-hmm. you know, he has himself gone through this period of intense growth. So that's kind of inspiring. I mean, that and that's one of those things that you would see um, in workplaces, certainly in academia, as someone who's gone through a challenging arc, bringing someone else in and trying to help them up, right? You know, it's all about helping people into the next phase. So I thought that was very heartwarming, you know, and again, kind of weird to have a heartwarming moment in a very action-packed episode, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, I don't think the action will stop and I hope the heartwarming moments won't stop either. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Before we go, I just wanted to say a few words about the scientific tidbit that this episode got my mind thinking about. So in Far From Home... The USS Discovery crashes on a planet and then begins to be infected by parasitic ice. Now, as far as I know, there is no such thing as parasitic ice, but it did remind me a lot about the process of cloud condensation. So in high school, we all learn that gases condense into liquid or solid particles when they reach saturation vapor pressure. That's the largest amount of vapor that the air can hold. But in reality, the situation is a bit more complicated than that. Most of the time, in order to condense into a cloud particle, vapor not just needs to be above its saturation vapor pressure, but also needs a seed or something for that vapor to stick to. Only once there's a critical size of, say, a water droplet can more water condense onto that. 
So we call these tiny little seeds cloud condensation nuclei. And on Earth, these cloud condensation nuclei can range from things like dust picked up by the wind, soot from factories and cars, salt grains from sea spray, and tiny little things that life emits. And even life itself. Some studies indicate that tiny bacteria in the atmosphere can actually induce cloud particle formation. On other worlds, cloud condensation nuclei can be wilder things. My friend and colleague Victoria Hartwick recently determined that micrometeorites streaking through Mars's atmosphere can act as an important source of cloud condensation nuclei. And on the distant worlds of Pluto, organic haze particles, these fluffy three-dimensional snowflakes made of carbon, nitrogen, and hydrogen, might be the seeds for cloud formation there. So in this discovery episode, we see this parasitic ice only condensing on the USS Discovery. And it doesn't really spread across the ground or anywhere else. And so to me, this screamed discovery, for whatever reason, is acting as the condensation nucleus for this parasitic ice to condense upon. All right, that's it from me and my special guest, Dr. Ingrid Okert, whom you'll hear a lot more from on a future Strange New Worlds episode. Till then, see you out there.